I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Are you in the market for a human skull? Maybe a full skeleton? Would you be surprised if I told you to check Instagram? The sale, purchase, and trade of most human bones in the U.S. is largely legal, and people are connecting on Instagram to find what they need. While some might want that perfect centerpiece for a collection, should these remains be treated as consumer products or objects with archaeological or anatomical value? Brian Sweetek, author of Skeleton Keys, The Secret Life of Bone, joins us to talk about the human bone trade. Next, what do you think is the most important job in the world right now? As our society continues to play out on online platforms, content and comment moderators play one of the most vital roles on the internet. Recent stories show how tough the job actually is. Facebook content moderators coping with PTSD symptoms are resorting to doing drugs and having sex on the job to deal with the stress. Ryan Broderick, BuzzFeed News reporter and former content moderator himself, joins us for why this job is so important. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I put more thought into the treatment of the chickens that you know lay the eggs that I buy at the grocery store than I did about buying somebody's remains. And that's part of the culture about this is that, you know, we don't think about it. Joining us now is Brian Sweetek, author of Skeleton Keys, The Secret Life of Bone. We uh, found your article on popular science and the headline caught me right away. The human bone trade is legal and it's booming on Instagram. Apparently people are using various hashtags to call attention to things that they might have for sale. And it's all human skulls, a bunch of other types of things. Tell us a little bit about how this new market has opened up on Instagram. Over the past couple of years, it's really shifted to Instagram. I mean, it used to be on other platforms that I'm sure uh, your listeners are familiar with, like eBay or on Etsy. And uh, you know, over time, those other places have closed down the sale of human remains. I think on eBay right now, you can only sell uh, human hair, and that's about it. But on Instagram, it's not as regulated because you know we're not actually, for the most part, selling stuff on Instagram. I mean. We're kind of selling ourselves through our, you know, social media profiles, but it's a lot of, you know, images and someone says, you know, send me a direct message or you can go to my website here and buy the, you know, advertising for bones or human remains that they may have for sale. And if you know the right hashtags to follow, you can find all kinds of different, you know, trinkets or curios or other things, but really they're all the stuff that looks like it's set for your mantelpiece or to complete your goth wardrobe. They're the remains of people. Right. From your book, you mentioned that bone gathering has become a subculture status symbol. Yeah, it seems to get a little bit bigger every year, at least on social media. Uh, part of that is because certain outlets have closed down and a lot of things have moved to places like Instagram. There was a study that a couple of archaeologists did of you know tracking the bone trade specifically on social media. And I think the you know last number that they came up with for the years they looked at in the study was about $57,000 worth of sales of human remains. And that number just kept going up each year. It might be greater this year. I'm not sure there's statistics for that just yet. But this isn't just about Instagram either. There are plenty of you know websites and natural history stores that sell skeletons and other human remains. And there's quite a big market for this. There's a, you know a, another journalist came up with the term for this, the red market, basically. Basically, you know, the sale of human blood, hair, body parts, you know, bones, all the stuff that extends to all sorts of different things. But skeletons in particular, I mean, this is a global trade. And for example, uh, medical students in India are often encouraged to go out and get a real human 
skeleton to study from rather than a uh, substitute or a cast. And this continues to fuel this market. I know a lot of people might have an apprehension thinking, uh, you know, can I have this legally? Apparently, it is very legal to sell, purchase and trade human bones, most human bones, at least. This is one of the questions between, you know, the difference between is it legal and is it ethical? It's legal in many aspects. There are some exceptions, for example, Native American remains or remains that are of forensic interest, so involved in a crime or some kind of criminal investigation. There are also certain state laws about this and how bones can be transported. But many human remains in the United States are sold legally. But the question is, you know, as beautiful as, as bones are, I certainly find them beautiful. I've got, you know, some animal skulls and some casts of fossil critters, you know, on my, on my bookshelves uh, in my study collection. But when it comes to people, the question is, did this person consent to this form of afterlife for themselves? Would they be okay with being somebody's status symbol or hanging on the mantelpiece? Many of these people were uh, bodies that were stolen, either from graves or funeral pyres or various other places that have been traded around for years. You know, when old medical schools closed down, they sell off their collections, you know, skeletons can enter the market that way. So there's an emerging conversation about this, you know, the legality of it. You know, you can look that up based upon where you are. But is this ethical to do? Are we treating basically the remains of people as nothing more than objects? And that's one of the, you know, sort of upshots of the archaeological studies about this bone market is that a lot of the mentality is very much sort of like the looter mentality that existed in the 19th century when anthropologists and archaeologists from museums would go out and just dig up whoever and put them in museum collections and were still reckoning with that. So even though it might be legally above board, the question is, like, is this right to do? We're talking about Instagram and how the market has opened up there a little bit. People are using these tags, you know, trophy skulls and hashtag real bone, but they're really not telling you more about who that person could have been. It's straight up. This is a random skull. I might have cleaned it up. I might have done some artsy stuff to it, but there's no identifying markers about it. It's treating people or the remains of people as stuff. And I was talking to a friend of mine about this because she was interested in getting a human skull or human skeleton for her reference collection and using it to do some artwork with and asking me about the ethics of this. And at the end of our discussion, she said, you know, it's kind of funny. Like I put more thought into the treatment of the chickens that, you know, lay the eggs that I buy at the grocery store than I did about buying somebody's remains. And that's part of the culture about this is that, you know, we don't think about it. We depersonify these people and they just become an object. They become a thing. And I know for myself, I'm, I'm not Okay, with that, that that would certainly make me shudder. To you know, as much as I might want to wind up in you know in a museum someday, so people can learn from my bones. If I just wound up on somebody's mantelpiece or as an art project, I wouldn't love that. But you know, at that point, I wouldn't have a say in it. So this ongoing conversation of what do we expect for you know after after we pass away and, and the disposition of our remains and what what is acceptable and do we owe anything to these people who have passed away? What are the most common bones that you can find in some of these places? Is it skulls? I saw. In your book, you mentioned, you know, fingers, and a lot of times people would make necklaces out of them. What are the most common ones that are being sold? Skulls are really the ultimate status symbol for a lot of us, because, I mean, skulls have the most personality. They're really, you know, the structure of our faces. But I think beyond that, it's usually the, some of the smaller bones of the skeleton, like a lot of hand and finger bones that you can use for smaller pieces of jewelry, like earrings or necklaces or, or, or things like that. Something like hip bones and stuff, they're relatively large and, you know, they look kind of neat, but there's not as much interest in that. So I think it's really the skull is what a lot of people are interested in and a lot of the smaller bones of the skeleton that can be kind of strung along the other pieces of jewelry or artwork. The book is called Skeleton Keys, The Secret Life of Bone. What else do you talk about in that book? Well, it's really the natural and unnatural history of our skeletons. So not only 
how our skeletons came together in an evolutionary sense and biological sense, you know, what our bones are, are doing right now as they grow and change, but also, you know, our relationship to bones, what we think they say about us and who we are and where, and where we came from. So the first half of the book is all about the origin, evolution, and biology of bones. And the second half is, you know, cultural beliefs about bones, dealing with everything from the bone trade to ideas that fueled scientific racism and why those are wrong through, if you want to become a fossil, how would you do that? What is the future of our bones? So, you know, sort of the birth of bones towards death and afterlife. Brian Sweetek, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, this has been great. Thank you. Part of me thinks that if a restaurant like McDonald's said, we have so many customers, we can't take enough time to make sure the meat is all not rotten. I'd be like, well, you can't be a restaurant anymore. And I think that if Facebook says they're at such a scale that they can't possibly monitor everything that everyone's posting, then maybe you shouldn't be that big of a website. Joining us now is Ryan Broderick, BuzzFeed news reporter. We're going to be talking about the most important job in the on the internet, maybe the most important job in the world right now, as we continue to live out our lives more and more online through social networks, uh, just everything, uh, searching all the stuff that we need it for. Moderating content and comments is becoming one of the most vital responsibilities for a lot of these companies that we always use. There's the discussion of free speech. Communities organize on these online platforms. There's issues of censorship. There's harassment, spam. All these things kind of come together in comment sections and in content that we post online. So tell us about why this is such an important job. I think it's important to remember that anything you put on the internet is seen by other people and historically used to be moderated by other people, whether it was your comments, your videos, your photos, anything you post on a message board or an internet community was usually vetted by an administrator or a moderator. We've been told this myth over the last decade by really large tech companies like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, that we don't need human moderators anymore. We don't need someone behind the screens breaking up fights and deleting bad stuff and monitoring for hate speech and abuse and harassment because they think that they can replace that with an AI or an algorithm that can scan. And the reason they want to do that is because of scale. These communities are huge, which means having lots of moderators would be really expensive, and it's a pretty unsexy job. But we don't have an algorithm that can do that properly yet. Bad stuff gets through all the time. And you can see the, the really serious like social damage that's done when huge controversies flare up and they keep flaring up and we keep waiting for some sort of algorithmic solution, but it doesn't seem like there's one on the horizon, you know? YouTube had some uh, problems with these kind of pedophile rings using the comments section to share timestamps, screenshots of underage minors in uh, sexual uh, positions and whatnot. So YouTube disabled comments on almost all videos featuring minors. Facebook also was in the news for one of their vendors uh, called Cognizant in Arizona. They're one of their content moderation facilities. And, you know, the reports there were people that were looking at all these horrible videos over and over were getting PTSD from it. And to cope, they were having to uh, smoke weed in the, in the restrooms, have sex in the restrooms, uh, just anything to kind of get their minds off of it. And, you know, the problem is these people are paid very lowly. They're not, they don't make much money. So it's a tough job to do. 
community moderator, a comment moderator, whatever you want to call it, the person looking at the stuff that you're putting on the internet is a very similar role to that of a social worker or a town counselor or some weird combination of a sheriff and a librarian, right? It's just, it's a civic job. It's someone who deals with the stuff that people put up there. You have to hire them and support them and pay them properly and give them access to, you know, mental health screenings and, and all kinds of other stuff, because it's, it's a seriously important role that deserves that sort of support. Going back to that Facebook story with their vendor, Cognizant, some of the stories out of there were pretty crazy. They'd get 15 minute breaks, 30 minute breaks, whatnot. But they said a lot of the time was spent waiting in line for the bathroom because there was only one bathroom with like three stalls and there was hundreds, you know, hundred people <laughs> that were working in that building. So these content moderators need to be set up with the right thing so that they can slog through all the crap that they have to put that people put up on the internet. You yourself actually were a moderator for BuzzFeed for some time. Tell us a little bit about how that worked, because it's uh, very interesting. In 2012, I wanted a job at BuzzFeed, and at the time, the only job that was open was something called a comment moderator. And I thought, okay, well, I'll join and see what I can, you know, it was a small company at the time. And I would come in and I would read about 900 comments a day on the worst worst days. Our website was pretty small at the time and our community was pretty good. I would ban bad users, give stars and stickers to good users. And it was a pretty interesting look at the underside of the internet. And you know, if I, as a moderator, would do anything to say a bad comment or remove a bad user, you could see that effect in the community. And, and you know, after some pruning and after some getting rid of the bad actors, things were a lot nicer. And obviously, they would get bad again, and you'd have to remove some people, delete some comments, and it's a constant upkeep. But it is worth it because, you know, the writers have a better time, the audience has a better time reading the comments. Sometimes comment sections can become their own gems of the internet. And to lose that sort of magic kind of defeats the whole purpose of having people put anything up on the internet in the first place anyways. Taking out some of the bad actors would start changing the conversation, and I'm assuming focus it more on what the content and hand would be versus trolls and people just arguing in and of themselves, right? This uh, brings up a really good point, which is that to hire, so say your, your Facebook or your Twitter or your YouTube and you want to hire a bunch of moderators to actually go in and start removing bad actors and enforcing rules, you have to come up with some rules to enforce, right? We hear stories every day of Facebook or Twitter deleting random things or blocking random things or, you know, this woman's breastfeeding picture or that person getting in a fight on Twitter and all of a sudden it disappeared, right? When I was working at BuzzFeed on our comment section, we had a pretty good set of rules, you know, no hate speech, targeted harassment. And then also, as a moderator, it was up to my discretion to be like, all right, like, you know, you got to go. Like, sorry, dude, (laughs) you fight with everyone all the time and you're harassing everybody, you got to go. And I think these massive, massive platforms are at such a scale where they're trying to not just impose user guidelines on one country. They're trying to impose user guidelines across hundreds of countries with all varying differences when it comes to free speech and when it comes to platforming and all this stuff. And it's almost an impossible task. Part of me thinks that if a restaurant like McDonald's said, we have so many customers, we can't take enough time to make sure the meat is all not rotten. 
I'd be like, well, you can't be a restaurant anymore. And I think that if Facebook says they're at such a scale that they can't possibly monitor everything that everyone's posting, then maybe you shouldn't be that big of a website. And you're talking about an impossible job. One of the interesting parts of your article, you uh, talk about astroturfing. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's a really common thing where, you know, one community notices what another community is doing. They all register accounts. They all come in and then you start, you know, spamming your website with horrible photos and bad language and all kinds of stuff. And it's called astroturfing. The idea is to create this like false consensus against a writer or a user that they're bad or they're, you know, they're awful. What's really interesting on Facebook is that because it's such a humongous website, you're basically seeing inter-community astroturfing all the time. Like, you know, one part of Facebook notices another part of Facebook and it's a free-for-all, which, you know, is crazy because, you know, what is it, 2019, when I was in college or more than 10 years ago now, there were more than four websites that people went on. But now there isn't, right? <laughs> you know, we've, we've, the internet has weirdly become a lot smaller as more people start using it. So these websites that want to centralize every person on earth, YouTube wants to have every single video viewer and Facebook wants to have every single person. Well, if they want to centralize everybody, then they've got to be able to figure out a system that means that, you know, my grandpa doesn't get astroturfed by a bunch of white nationalists because he accidentally posts a comment on Arby's fan page, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all of this really does illustrate the importance of this job, but these huge companies are relying on these people to make the calls, to make their platforms a better place for everybody to be able to hang out and to interact with each other. That's what the goal is, I guess, aside from selling advertising and things like that. But really that, I mean, it is becoming increasingly a more important job. And, and as we said throughout this interview, I mean, they're looking towards artificial intelligence and algorithms to sort of maybe help solve this problem when it seems increasingly like you do need a human there to moderate this stuff, but they need to be supported with everything that they need to be able to go through it all. Maybe one day we'll have some sort of God algorithm that can police every single thing on the internet, which frankly sounds terrifying, but say we eventually get to that point. Great, but we're not there yet. And right now the internet is too important of a resource to have a couple of broken robots and some poorly paid contractors being all that stops, you know, people from going completely berserk. The last question I have uh, would be kind of on the free speech angle. And I'm not saying that anybody should be saying horrible things on the Internet because that's you just shouldn't say horrible things to people in general. But let's say, you know, there's this thin line between Facebook and uh, Twitter and all that stuff becoming these other message board websites like 4chan and things like that. There's a very thin line between that. And I guess it is the moderator's job to take care of that. But what about what people say that, hey, we should be able to post whatever we want? How do you square that away with the job of the moderators? I think it's a, a kind of a, a this really warped argument that I keep hearing right now, which is that, you know, somehow Facebook or Twitter is a free speech issue. But it's not. Free speech has nothing to do with using Facebook and Twitter, right? Like free speech stops me from being arrested if I go into the street and I yell bad things about the president. That's another argument, too. People say that a lot of these companies are stifling the speech of a lot of conservative, they do support the president and, and then they get banned and things like that. It's kind of a very heartbreaking situation because well, let's say 10 years ago, it wouldn't matter if Twitter was or was not stifling the speech of any one particular political ideology because you could go make your own website and it wouldn't matter. But we've allowed these websites to become so gargantuan and so influential that now they're political spaces and the people running them aren't equipped and the technology running them isn't equipped to deal with this. So, I mean, my very simple answer 
I would say is just like these websites are too big, and if they can't handle this size, and they shouldn't be this size. If they can't create an environment where people can safely and openly communicate without swatting each other or doxing each other or any other malicious thing you can do to someone on the internet, then they shouldn't exist. And I, I you know, I, I think we'd probably all be a lot happier if Twitter itself just didn't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a huge <laughs> undertaking to, to get anywhere near some of that. <laughs> but Ryan Broderick, BuzzFeed News reporter, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>